uh, we're trying to pay it forward to other families because if you think that what you saw here was special, none of it would have happened if dad hadn't had the ability to choose the date. And it gave him such, as you saw, wind in his sails and such a feeling of agency and peace and hope. And every family we've met who had a loved one who had the medical aid and dying option and took it, all of them have healing closure. They all were able to come and be there. Kids were able to come home. You know, it's just, it's something that if a person is dying anyway, they should really have that right. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, director Andi Timoner follows her father, Eli Timoner, during the 15-day waiting period before medically terminating his own life in Last Flight Home. Screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, the film catalogs the former swashbuckling entrepreneur, now bedridden, as he says goodbye to those closest to him while they struggle to reconcile with his choice. In addition to Last Flight Home, Timoner's other directorial credits include the narrative feature Maplethorpe and the documentaries The New Americans Gaming a Revolution, The Nature of the Beast, and Brand a Second Coming. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Timoner spoke with director Susanna Styron about Last Flight Home. Listen on for their conversation. At what point in your father's decline did you realize you were going to make this film? And, and can you talk a little bit about how you brought that into your family? Sure. Um, so I didn't intend to make a documentary about this. I, I have always intended to tell my father's story, but those are the pages you see on the bed. Uh, it's a script I've been working on with him for a decade uh, about the 70s and the 80s and the airline and the stroke and the impact on our family. Uh, I set up cameras very much as a, a safety net. I had a very guttural reaction when he said he needed to die. And to, as you can see in the beginning of the film, was pleading with us to help him. And he was someone who had maybe complained five times in his whole life. And he had, was paralyzed since I was 10. So, yeah, I can't remember him from before the stroke. So when he said that and when my brother discovered that there was this law in California, medical aid and dying, and that end of life option act was an option and that he could begin hospice and would be leaving in 15 days, this planet, I totally panicked. And I just had never... You know, dad was so tenacious and he would say even on his 92nd birthday, which was December right before January when this all happened, he said, oh, I'll know where Juki's going to go to college or I'll always be there, you know, and I kind of believed him. And I think that that's something that is not uncommon. I think that we tend to not really prepare for death as a society because it is such a terrifying prospect to lose our loved ones. And uh, so I just... I bought it, you know, I thought he was going to be around forever. And when he said that, I realized that I thought the earth might open up and just swallow me. 
whole, but I certainly realized that I would forget what he sound. I might forget what he sounded like or some of the things he said. And then it dawned on me that I'm a documentary filmmaker. And I was like, wait a second, I have cameras. I could film him when he comes home. Uh, not again, not for a documentary, but because I am a documentary filmmaker for 31 years, I shot it like a documentary. I set up multiple cameras, four cameras, you know, um, I didn't want the process of filmmaking to be, uh, even it, it, that present in my own, uh, sphere. And it was so, I was, went to see a therapist cause I was so concerned about mediating the experience or was I trying to hide behind the camera or, you know, or what, and was I going to hurt my family from this process? And she said, to my surprise, if you feel you should film, you should film. So I called my father who was in the hospital still. And I said, dad, I feel like when you come home to start hospice and begin this process, I feel like I should film it and film you all the way through to the end. And he said, I instinctively know you're on the right track which as you can see from the movie, the dad is one of the most supportive people in the world. So I don't know if he knew what track I was on, but I certainly didn't know. And then uh, my brother who founded Interloper Films with me was of course on board and fine. He's a very, he's like my father. He's a very, very cool, very, you know, go with the flow kind of guy. Um, my and mom so was kind of like, what too? is going on here? What? He's a filmmaker too. He's an editor. Yeah. Um, and he and I made, made our film dig together back in, you know, it's going to be the 20th anniversary, uh, the Sundance coming up. It won the grand jury prize 20 years ago. We're actually preparing a 20th anniversary extended cut. Um, yeah, for that occasion. So that's been fun. We're back together, like collaborating on that right now. Um, I'm collaborating with both my siblings cause I'm here in New York finishing a movie about Rachel who you just met. Yeah. I've been making that film since 2019 way before I was thinking about making this film, which even when I was filming it, I wasn't thinking about making, but, um, back to that story. So okay, I went, we'll so, talk about yeah, that let's go back. So, so mom, so mom felt like a production was happening anyway with all the hospice workers and kind of, as you could see, was in denial and felt like she was kind of hosting a party of some kind. Um, getting her to actually just sit with dad was the big challenge there. My sister was here as a rabbi, she's the senior rabbi at Congregation Beth Elohim in Park Slope. And she can't just leave for three weeks. So she's the one who doesn't like cameras, ironically. Um, she was the one I was making a film called Rebel Rabbi about for a long time. So that's why all that footage of her exists, protesting and all of that. Um, but I knew that she would be the one who would be most disturbed by the documentary and so, or by the documentation process. So my goal in those, in those first 10 days was to make that process invisible as much as possible. And that house that they live in is a house that I raised my son in that I gave them to live in. So they, so that, so I had knocked down the garage and built off edit bays behind it. So I actually had a place that the whole process could disappear to. Right. So I had like an assistant editor who could be back there. And so I never like there was really no crew present. It was just cameras and then no you, other camera operators. No, I mean, Morgan, who scored the film, who's my partner right there. Um, she's not a camera person, but she was like the only one around a lot of the time. So I'd be like, 
can you just make sure that light's on? And then of course I operated whenever anyone else came to visit. And I had one camera that the main camera that was on my father was, uh, was through, was like him and whoever sat next to him was actually shooting through an open door in my son's old bedroom. And it was, and the cool thing about that camera was that no one at the bed could really see that camera, but the camera could see the bed and that had the law of mics. So I found my son back there crying, um, listening to his, his grandmother say to his grandfather, you never let me down. I said, what's going on? he was like, he turned to me like crying. Uh, I found my brother back there once in a while when his kids would be there. Suddenly as the process went, as the days, you know, we felt like we were walking a plank, you know, to this inevitable conclusion of losing dad. And the filmmaking got more and more important to everybody actually, because there would be something left of him when he was gone. So I found my brother making sure the camera was on when his kids were at the bedside type of thing. Yeah. Um, my sister said it wouldn't be your preference. Um, by the 25th of February, we had a zoom with her. We had daily zoom with her. And on that zoom, I said, we had all decided that the, the medical aid and dying part of this was so important that the gift was so important. It, it's a gift, really. It's a, such a compassionate law that is so misunderstood that you, it's so misunderstood that you in New York don't have the right, you know, and it's only a right in nine states and Washington, D.C. And so, and there's a sunset clause in California where it could go away. So we felt like it was our, in a way, our responsibility because we had cameras going to make just a short film or something, not nearly as personal as all of this, but to do something in support of other terminally ill people and their families having this right. And that actually is why I'm in New York because we're, we're doing a, a we're um, speaking at a festival tomorrow called the completed life initiative festival. And uh, that's part of our impact campaign that has kind of come you know, after being shortlisted for the Oscar and now we're nominated for an Emmy, which is wonderful, but all of that doesn't really get the film necessarily to the people that need to see it. And that's, you know, Harvard medical school and Stanford university and Congress and state representatives. And, you know, Rachel gave the convocation at the New York state Senate recently and asked them to have mercy um, and for God to give them mercy uh, we're trying to pay it forward to other families because if you think that what you saw here was special, none of it would have happened if dad hadn't had the ability to choose the date. And it gave him such, as you saw, wind in his sails and such a feeling of agency and peace and hope. And every family we've met who had a loved one who had the medical aid and dying option and took it, all of them have healing closure they all were able to come and be there. Kids were able to come home. You know, it's just, it's something that if a person is dying anyway, they should really have that right. There should be bodily autonomy at the end of life. And I feel really strongly about that. And I didn't even know there was a law when all this started, you know? So we decided to make a short and we talked to Rachel about that. And she said, well, it wouldn't be my choice to document. Um, but mom is, and dad, if it's important to you and dad, especially, and dad said, it is important to me. So the, so the cameras kept rolling and Rachel said that it really didn't bother her. She made a decision that the cameras weren't there. And I, by then had like 
it, they were like part of the furniture in a way. And we just had this seamless process of just switching cards, switching batteries. And I had one that Nest camera to keep track of time to make sure that we didn't lose track and that I myself was not so distracted by the process. So I really um, didn't want to be a documentary filmmaker. I was really dad's chief, you know, sort of the quarterback of his care at that point. Um, I was the only kid uh, of the three siblings who is an independent filmmaker during COVID. I could wipe my calendar clean and really be there. So that was the primary thing was just, I, those were some of the best weeks of my life spending that time with him. It was absolutely sacred. And ironically, the, the cameras didn't separate me. The cameras as, and this is probably why I've lived my life with cameras is they, it, they just made me more present. They actually made me feel safe that I wouldn't forget a word he said. And they also, they, I'm always observing even deeper when there's cameras around. So I'm thinking about everything that's happening and everything that's being said and who's saying what, and, you know, really trying to ask the doctor's questions in that moment, which I probably would do anyway, but I'm also kind of interviewing them, you know, and it kind of gives me license to do that with a camera. So there were a lot of positive aspects to it. And then uh, it was a memorial video. Dad passed away and um, Rachel said, well, you have footage. Um, so the memorial was to be three weeks after he passed. And she said, well, can you put like five to 10 minutes together? And I thought, well, okay, okay, I guess so. So I thought, well, I thought about the pilot and the flight attendant and some of the happy moments. I thought I'll string some nice moments together and sat down a week before. Cause I just, you know, I don't think I would have faced the footage that fast anyway. I don't know what I would have done, but I don't think I would have, if Rachel, I don't think I would have. And I sat down and I was astounded. Dad was alive inside the avid. It was unbelievable. And now he was where he wanted to be. He was at peace and I didn't have to worry about him being uncomfortable. I could just spend time with him. It was really amazing. It was a miracle. And it was the first time in my life that filmmaking was there for me on such an emotional level. Usually like right now I'm totally exhausted because I've been filming for two days and I'm just like, we haven't had a break and we've been running around. And usually it's like that. This was just like this very peaceful, very sacred, very beautiful, organic process. And then suddenly there was dad, 500 hours of dad. Do you, you know, do you feel like that helped your grieving process? Oh, I immensely. Ask how to immensely. I don't even in a way feel like he's gone sometimes because he's impacting and healing so many people. And to turn something that is that painful, you know, into something that is that helpful for people is in a way relieving a, a certain burden. I feel like I've felt ever since the stroke, you know, to make something, to make some sense of that senselessness of him going in for a massage and having his neck cracked and ending up paralyzed. Like he was always so great. It wasn't that he became good. He always was innately good. He always made great decisions about how to treat people. And he, everyone, you know, in his company was like a family. It was like what a corporation should be, you know, it, they took care of each other. And, um, he deregulated the airline industry and democratized the skies and desegregated unions. And how could this be that he was just taken to the sidelines and he was as sharp as you saw to the day he died. So he, he was capable of running the airline, but there was such discrimination against handicapped people. Right. Uh, so it's just, 
yeah, dis- disability. And, uh, you know, it just, I, my whole life, I feel like uh, my sister said, maybe we can bury our shame with dad. And there's a lot to talk about there about how the movie is as much about really how to live as how to die with dad and dad holding on to feeling like a failure. But, you know, I, I didn't think I had shame until this process of sharing this film and hearing so many people, you know, or who are helped by it, either to prepare for losing a loved one or healing from a loss. It takes, it helps me like it, it's actually lifted some kind of shame that I didn't even know I had in a way, just a bur- just a weight that I've had. It gets lighter and lighter and lighter as the film does this work in the world because my father is helping people and he's not just, he didn't just live those 40 years behind a closed door in a suburban neighborhood and you didn't get to meet him. Now you know him, you know, you know this man that I love. So, um, so speaking of his feelings of shame, um, just to ask a really, um, filmmakery question. When did you know, when he had that incredible moment of admitting his shame and, 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 you know, your sister talking him through taking that weight off of himself, did you, at what point could, did you realize that that was, did, did you know you kind of had a, a, a film, like an arc of a film at that moment? Or did that come in editing? Because that seems to be that sort of what it leads to and what it kind of turns on it, his, I his, felt, his journey. Yeah, I didn't. So I went from grieving daughter to filmmaker. I'm an editor, you know, and I, when, when I speak at a film school or something and they ask advice, my advice always is to be an editor to learn how to edit. I just can't imagine just the frustration of being a director who doesn't edit. And I think it gives us such an amazing dimension, especially in documentary where so much of the story comes together in the edit. But for me personally with this film, it was like I went from grieving daughter who was just so happy to be with my father and sat there laughing and crying with him I stood up, I went, you know, I sat down for that memorial video, five to 10 minutes. I stood up a week later with a 32 minute memorial video. My sister was pretty upset because she had a memorial planned and it didn't, she's like, I had a memorial plan. I didn't have a film screening planned. You know, it worked out well. She admits, um, everybody really loved the video and people's reactions about death sort of changed. So I thought, I was enjoying myself so much. And I which I just realized in that moment, in that Zoom memorial from people around the world, that they were really, really, really touched by the footage. And that, and I felt like I was starting to discover things in the footage. So I just kept going. And I, and it's funny because a friend of mine who has a festival in Birmingham, Alabama, which we're headed to this week called Sidewalk Film Festival. She said, and I've wanted a couple of times and she was like, do you have any films to share this year? And I said, I might have a short about my father. And then a few weeks later I called, I said, I think it's a feature. Um, but if I show it, can we do it as a secret screening? Like no name, no title, nobody knows I'm there. Saturday afternoon, hundred people. She said, absolutely. So we showed a very rough cut of this film, like really rough. Um, it was How like, long was it? it was, it was never too long. It was just, it was just 
totally unfinished, but it was coming flying out of me. And I went from like filmmaking, I went from daughter to filmmaker and I started to see these arcs. Right. And I knew, I mean, I knew as, as a, as a producer, um, as a, as a doer and a, a person who's kind of, you know, tries to think, be, try to be very conscious in my life that we had a job to do to get dad to understand that he was important to us and that he was, had, had, that he had really touched us and that his love shaped us. Right. And he didn't understand that. Like at the beginning of the film, he clearly felt that it didn't matter if he died to, uh, to us and that to anybody and that he really just needed to go and um, that his life had been meaningless. And all those zoom calls, you know, I think of it as like the snow layer. If you're a skier, <laughs> like, I feel like Rachel came in and just like did that vidui and it was unbelievable, but it was after a couple of weeks of dad getting the love that he had shared with everyone reflected back on him. And that was so powerful. It gave him such a sense of like, oh my gosh, you know, it was just every day we did two or three of these calls or visits from people. We put the word out. And because of this law, we had the time to prepare and to really spend the time by reminiscing and going back through his life. And, and I, those pages on the bed is me reading him the script in between and kind of going back through the seventies and eighties and getting his react. I remember this is how unconscious I was about the doc uh, or like I was in denial about the documentary is I remember thinking, I'm so glad that the cameras are capturing his reaction to the scripted film so that I can shape it afterwards. I don't have to take notes right now. I remember thinking that, um, but we did all that kind of stuff at night. We'd put up a slide projector and we'd show slides and lie on the couch as she did. And dad would lie in his bed and they would just share stories about, you know, they had slides from their first years of marriage um, and so we just spent time like that. And so I knew that dad, that dad, mom was, she had to face this. She was going to lose her partner 54 years. And she finally does the night before, but mom has seen this film over 500 times. That was the first person that I was like, thank God I made a film. Cause from the memorial video, she watched it every single night. Then when I was editing, she came into the edit bay and she would just be there for the rough cuts, all the cuts, all the cuts, any scene. And even now she has her own link and she puts it on when she wants to see him and visit with him. So, um, so she did, you know, she had a grief that she had no idea she was going to have and guilt, guilt too. She was torn because she couldn't take care of him anymore. She really couldn't handle it physically. And she's having major health problems right now, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, she also loved him so dearly and she's terribly lonely without him, you know? But the film has been, again, like it's, it's traveled and, you know, um, I, and I thank you all for being here on a Friday night in the summertime York when no one's in town. Um, but there's been many, many screenings in New York and just packed houses and she's been at some of them and it's like, it makes her feel so happy to share her husband. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.